The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. I decided during the smackdown that I could win it easily. I have an English accent. <laughs> I should warn you, though, that Americans tend to believe anything an Englishman says, so you should check what I say against the Scriptures. I got an amen from over there. Thank you. Presbyterians don't usually do amen. I like that. Okay, it's good to be here. This is my second time around, um, so I feel like I'm beginning to get to know the folk at Jacob's Well, and I hope what I have to say will be pertinent to your lives. Uh, I'm preaching from an assigned passage. I gather you're studying through the book of Acts, and the passage that I've been given is Acts 20, verse 17 to 38. So let me read that to you. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our study of this portion of his word. Oh Lord God, thank you that you are here with us, that your Holy Spirit is here with us. May your Spirit enlighten our minds that we may better understand your word, an understanding that we may rejoice in the good news that we hear. May your Spirit be with me as I speak, that I might speak only your truth, and that I might speak it in a way that will really minister to these people here today. May your Holy Spirit take what is said and open hearts and open minds and bring people who hear the word closer to you and to your love for us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen? <clears throat> Some of you might be forgiven when you read the sermon title in the bulletin, Paul wept, for wondering if that was a typo. Paul wept? I mean, we know Jesus wept, right? But Paul? We know Jesus wept for a number of reasons. First of all, those two words are the shortest verse in the scripture, so it's the one we're inclined to memorize first because it's really easy. Jesus wept. We know Jesus wept because that verse comes in the middle of a section of John's Gospel. And after all, John's Gospel is the one we tend to go to more than any other. But it comes in the middle of the account of the raising of Lazarus. We know that story. We like that story. We go back to that story. It's a story that's often preached on because it comes two weeks before Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it points forward to the resurrection. So it prepares you for Easter. You can talk about other things in that, in that chapter. There's the, the, the shaky faith of Martha and Mary. There's some interesting things going on. You can even preach, and I've done this, a sermon on those two words, on that one verse. Jesus wept. And you can talk to Midwestern men who are not inclined to weep even in bad circumstances, and I can do that as an Englishman who was raised to believe that boys don't cry, and I can assure you that if Jesus wept, you know, it's okay. We can grieve. Jesus wept because his friend Lazarus died, and it's okay to have those kinds of emotions. So you've heard that Jesus wept. And here I'm talking about Paul weeping. We don't think of Paul weeping, and in case you missed it, he wept three times in that passage I just read. I think it's quite poor. I said this in the first service. And when I said, some of you who just listened to me read that passage probably still think Paul didn't weep. And a big grin came in a couple of faces because they hadn't spotted it in the passage. We'll come to Paul weeping in a moment. But why don't we think that Paul wept? We have this caricature of Paul. Paul is the man who can produce a good, logical argument, right? He's very intellectual. He just presents his argument one point after another. C.S. Lewis said that preaching is, or theology is a little bit like driving a herd of sheep down a country lane. You have to make sure that all the gates along the lane are shut, otherwise the sheep will wander into the, into the fields. Paul's the one that shuts all the gates. You're reading one of Paul's epistles and you think, oh, but this! And he goes, got you. Well, what about this? I've addressed that too. Paul is so logical. 
We think of Paul as rational, not in the sense that he doesn't believe in the supernatural, but he uses reason to persuade you. We think of Paul's the go-to for systematic theology. He's the place you go to when you want to check that your theology is correct. Paul's the go-to guy for doctrine. That's our image of Paul. That kind of person doesn't weep. But Paul wept. We might expect the Apostle John to weep. When you get to 1 John, John's the one that's for always talking about God is love, and he says it several times. And there's an apocryphal story about John that in his old age he was invited to preach somewhere, and he sort of stumbled onto the platform and said, little children, love one another, and then stumbled off again. That was the sermon. Nobody's ever complained about too short a sermon, have they? But Paul, we forget that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the great love passage, the passage that we use at every other wedding. Paul wrote that. He didn't just do doctrine. And Paul wept. I want to introduce you this morning to a different kind of Paul from the Paul that you thought you knew. You thought you knew the theologian Paul. I want to introduce you to the Paul who wept. So let's look again at that passage in chapter 20 of Acts. And notice when Paul wept. Starting at the end. Verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Not just Paul, but the elders too. This is a session meeting in which all the men weep on each other's shoulders. Now, I know this is taking place in Greece, and Mediterranean folk are a little more emotional than the Midwesterners and Englishmen. But this is still quite... They wept all over each other. And then it says, they embraced Paul and kissed him. We don't do that in the Midwest. My sister lives in France, and when I go to visit her, everybody kisses everybody else on both cheeks. It's perfectly normal, perfectly all right. So that's what happened there. Being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Jesus wept because his friend Lazarus had died. Even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, he still wept because death is something that is not part of what part of our created experience. It's the result of the fall. Jesus wept because his friend had died. Paul isn't dying here. He's going to Jerusalem. They don't know what's going to happen to him there. He said, trials and imprisonments come to me everywhere I go. Well, in fact, yes, that happened in Jerusalem. And then he went to Rome. And we don't actually know what happened to him in Rome there. The tradition has it he died there, but we don't know. So they're not weeping because Paul is dying. They're weeping simply because they're being separated from somebody they dearly love. But that's not the only reason Paul weeps in this passage. Look at verse 19. He talks about, starting halfway through 18, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He's not weeping because of the trials. He goes on, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable 
and teaching you in public and from house to house. The teaching, as we'll see in a moment, has to do with his preaching. The, the weeping has to do with his preaching and teaching ministry. In verse 31, be alert, he says to the elders, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul preached, not just on Sundays, not just in big public gatherings, but he went from house to house during the week for three years. And for three years when he did this, he preached with tears. Paul was an emotional preacher. It moved him, his preaching, so much that he preached with tears. Why did Paul weep? I don't think it was because he looked at the congregation and thought, oh dear, I've got to preach to this lot again. Or because he thought, they're in trouble. Paul, if you read Paul, Paul is not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. He's really not. Paul is a grace of God preacher. Paul wept, I believe, because of the good news that he was preaching. I'll tell you about something that happened to me when I was a child in England. My family were not a church-going family, except two, twice a year. We went on Easter Sunday and Christmas Day. Because in England, we worship on Christmas Day rather than Christmas Eve. Christmas Day is the obligatory one. So we went Easter Sunday and Christmas, Christmas Day. And I remember on, Chris, on Easter Sunday, the vicar of the little rural parish church we went to would come into the pulpit at the beginning of the service and he had tears streaming down his face and he would say, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. I don't remember much else he said, but I remember that the resurrection moved him to tears. He wept because of the good news. He wasn't weeping because the Harris family were here finally once more, <laughs> them again. He was weeping because Christ had risen from the dead. The good news. There's a member of our presbytery, I won't name him, but whenever he stands up in presbytery to talk about anything, especially, not just about the budget, but when he stands up to talk about what God has done for us in Christ, his voice breaks up. And he's on the verge of tears. It's the good news of what God has done for us in Christ that moves that man close to tears. The good news. Or myself. Late in May, my wife and I celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary. I sat at the breakfast table, praying and reading my Bible, and giving thanks that I was still married after 43 years. And I burst into tears. Because I know who I am. And I know it is by God's grace that I am still married to the same woman after 43 years. And she still loves me. And it moved me to tears. I wasn't weeping because, oh, we've had 43 years, how awful. I was weeping because it was 43 years and I was just moved to tears at the grace of God that, that, would have, that I would have had that blessing. The kind of weeping, Jesus wept because Lazarus had died. The elders and Paul wept because he was leaving. But when he preached, he wept because he was preaching the good news of God's grace to us in Christ. How 
How does this apply to us? I don't want to suggest to you that Paul is somehow a model for us here in the sense that he, th this is what we all ought to be doing any more than Jesus is when he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. It's not that we are obligated to weep. It's not, I'm, I'm not pointing at Paul and saying, Paul wept, Jesus wept, now you all go home and cry. That's not the point. But it is a freedom. It is a freedom for us that when pain happens or when good news happens, it's not improper as a Christian to cry. Now, my wife knows that, and I suspect many of the men here can go, yeah, my wife knows it's not wrong to weep too. But most of us as men do not know it's okay to weep. It's okay to weep when something painful happens. It's okay to weep when something really, really good happens. When, when Anne and I got married, we, got, we were taken to the train station after the wedding, got on the train, and she burst into tears. And I thought, what did I do wrong? She said, I'm so happy. Men can do that occasionally. <laughs> but Jesus is one who, and Paul, give us the freedom to weep when appropriate. But that's not my main point. My main point, as I said at the outset, is to try and reshape your vision of who Paul is. Some people I know find it hard to read Paul's letters. Eh, they're all theology. They're all doctrine. I want you to be able to reread Paul's letters and feel the emotion of Paul when he writes those things. I want you to be moved by Paul's letters, not just intellectually persuaded. I want you to be emotionally moved by Paul's letters. I want you to go away from here and read some of Paul's letters again and go, wow! I, I never saw that in Paul before. I just read them as a source of doctrine. But they're deeply moving. And the only way I know really how to illustrate this to you, and I hope this works, is to read to you a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is a letter he wrote from Rome under imprisonment. And he writes back to the church in Ephesus, whose elders he has been talking to in that passage in Acts. So these are the kind of things he's reminding them of what he taught them. So these are the kinds of things that he would have taught house to house, night after night, day after day in Ephesus, over which he wept as he was preaching it. I want to read this to you. You can follow along if you like. If it helps just to close your eyes and... Hear me read and imagine this is Paul. I'm not, but imagine this is Paul. And hear this. And hear the... This is an emotionally saturated passage of Scripture. It's doctrinally saturated, but you can lay that aside for now. It's an emotionally saturated passage of Scripture. Imagine Paul weeping as he shared these things with the church in Ephesus. I'm going to read it without much commentary. And I just want you to... Embrace the emotions that Paul is embracing. Paul is talking about all that God has given us in Christ. All that God has given us in Christ who died for us and rose for us. Hear then the word of God. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's why he chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, and I think by that he means the Jews, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, and I think by that he means the Gentiles, and therefore I suspect most of us who are not Jewish. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You are safe. You are secure. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and how much joy that must have brought Paul to be able to write back to this church that he was concerned with and say, I've heard these good things of you. For this reason, I've heard these good things. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And what does he want for this church? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And that faith is itself a demonstration of God's power because it is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, or for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that in itself will be wonderful enough. But then there's this wonderful vision of the God who loves us ruling over all things. But then Paul goes on and talks about our sin and how God has dealt with that. So listen to this next section. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I'm with Chad. These two next words are enough by themselves to make us weep. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not in the future tense. That's in the past tense. You are already seated in Christ at the right hand of God. You have that intimacy with God. And why did God do all this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why have you been saved? so that God might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, that is even the faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How can we read that? How can we hear that and not be deeply moved? If not to tears, because we are, after all, Midwesterners and Englishmen. If not to tears, then at least to great joy. Moved to wonder. Moved to awe at the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. The immeasurable riches of his kindness. This is the God who created all things and has watched us sin, has watched up mess up his life, his, as creator, has watched us mess up his world and loves us so much that he became human, died for us on the cross, was raised for the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and we are seated with him because we too have been raised from the dead. And he does this because he loves us. He does this so he can show you the immeasurable riches of his kindness in the rest of your life. How can we not be moved by this? How can we not be moved by God's love for us in Christ? This is not just doctrine. This is a love affair of God with us. Now my point in all this is not to point to Paul, though I've spent most of my time talking about Paul, but with Paul to point to Christ in whom we know the love of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my point in pointing, my motive in pointing to Christ is so that we might not only know what Paul knew up here in our heads, have it intellectually, but also and no less important that we might feel something of what Paul felt. I would love for you to go from here and spend time reading Paul's letters and finding yourself weeping over the wonderful things that Paul declares about the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Oh Lord God, you are good to us beyond our imagining. You love us more than we can imagine. You love us more than we can love. You love us despite all our faults. You love us despite our sin. You love us so much in our sin that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you became human in Christ and died for us. And when you've saved us, you don't simply say, well, that's nice, I've got them saved, they're ready for heaven, I'll move on to somebody else. But you stay with each one of us. You take care of us through our lives. You're patient with us. You put up with us in love. And you continue to pour out on us your immeasurable kindness in Christ. May we go from here with eyes opened afresh to the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.